Caller number one, you're on the air. Caller number one is calling from an all new audio setup. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. I'm, <laughs> I'm always glad to hear that. It's new computer. You just change every single part and then uh, <laughs> there'll be no problems. Yeah, I mean, levels, levels. I mean, the, the levels are looking levelly. Levels, levels. As long as you say level, levels, problems cannot occur. Yeah, it's the magic. It's the magic phrase. Fun fact. Mm. In 2018, a randomized trial of parachute use found that parachute use, using a parachute, did not significantly reduce death or major injury when jumping from an aircraft. I'm actually, I was actually speechless. <laughs> I love it. That's, that is incredible. So you might think maybe this, this study was poorly done, but no. This was in the British Medical Journal. Well, I'm already skeptical. Yeah, that's a pretty legit medical journal. It sounds legit. Uh, parachute, the t- study title, Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma When Jumping from Aircraft, Randomized Controlled Trial. And it's Does that mean they randomized like so. the heights? Because I think... Also, how do you do... I would like to know how you do a randomized parachuting trial uh, Well, they safely. describe how. Yeah, I'm excited to hear this because my my thing would be like, as far as I understand it, in sort of modern... Uh, what do they call it? Westernized medicine and science. You are mm-hmm. not supposed to run experiments that uh, you know will potentially hurt people. Right. Just so to you, determine you, how you, bad you, it hurts people. You're hitting on some of the the threads in this <laughs> in this study here, um, which is when we say randomized, what does that mean? We say well, we've got a randomized controlled trial, but like. What's random? Yeah, what's random and what's not, right? Yeah. So this is how it sets the scene. Parachutes are routinely used to prevent death or major traumatic injury among individuals jumping from aircraft. However, yeah. evidence supporting the efficacy of parachutes is weak, and guideline recommendations for their use are principally based on biological plausibility and expert opinion, which is the kind of... I like pr- to base things on those things. Well, they're okay things to, to base things on, but we get, we're getting into this sort of thing on evidence-based medicine, which is this mm. idea that we want to try to have scientific validated evidence in terms of something like a randomized controlled trial in order to show that an intervention is actually uh, effective. Intervened. Yeah, that is worth the intervention. You know, we, we have a lot of practices over time that, uh, at least in medical field, this is true in a lot of, certainly true in a lot of other fields, in business, for example, um, where we do things because we've always done them when we assume they work, but we don't actually have scientific evidence they work. And then eventually we learn, oh, maybe this thing isn't effective. Um, and so the, the, the framing here of, okay, well, there's this thing that people do, which is use parachutes, um, but there isn't any actual, like, scientific study proving uh, that that these are effective is a common kind of phrasing that you you'll see and so what they do is they took 92 people i'm deeply skeptical right now 92 but. i don't see why you would be skeptical about this <laughs> so they took 92 people on aircraft uh, over the age of 18 and they asked those people for consent to participate in the trial they asked uh, whether they were willing to be randomly assigned into uh, one of the, the two groups that uh, that one group would have a parachute or no parachute and so 23 of the people agreed and those 23 people were randomly assigned using a scientifically valid randomization algorithm into the two groups of 
one group had a parachute and the other group had a, a backpack that didn't have a parachute. I would, lo- I would, I have so many follow up questions <laughs> about who those 23 people were and why they agreed, but continue. Well, we might get into a little bit into that because um, uh, they, they describe a little bit some of the, the, the results. They Did found. you read, hold on, p- pausing for a second because I remember some previous episodes. Did you read this study? Oh, yeah. And I'm going to link the study. You should all read it too because this, this is a great study. Um, okay, great. This is totally, and it's very readable. I'm on board. So, uh, after the jumps, uh, they assessed the participants for uh, injury, uh, yeah, and they that found that parachute did, that parachute use did not produce a st- statistically significant reduction in death or major injury because they found an injury rate of zero percent in the parachute group and zero percent in the control group with the empty backpacks. <laughs> um, and so they they you know there was nothing they couldn't. The, it didn't make it didn't make it a difference. The there was, it was not statistically yeah. significant. That is non-significant if it's exactly the same. Yeah, as zero. It, it, yeah. It has to be you know nineteen times out of twenty. Yeah, not producible to random chance, and yeah. that's not even close. Yeah, they did note, however, there they did observe a bit of a some variance in between the individuals who declined to participate in the study and those who did not participate. Um, they found that the median altitude of the airplanes. Of the people who agreed to to participate um, was different. So the 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 non participants, the average height of the airplane was ninety one hundred meters. Okay. And then the, the average height of the airplane on people who agreed to participate was one meter. <laughs> so they found there was some some variance. But that doesn't mean that they didn't do a randomized controlled trial of participants jumping from airplanes. It's just that they there was some there was some difference in the in the so opt in. Hold on. So the way that they did this incredible study <laughs> was that they they got ninety three people who, in theory, were willing to consider participation. Yeah, and, and then, they, then explained. they assigned to each of them a parachute, no parachute, and height of jump randomized mm. parameter height of airplane no you've you've just hit on you've just hit on um one of the the kind of things that they're trying to illustrate with the study is that you there's often um underlying things about a population that you can't randomly assign you can't randomly assign someone uh well i mean you could imagine maybe doing it but in this study they didn't they didn't randomly assign people to how high their plane was okay they just asked some people who were in airplanes at cruising altitude and some other people who are in a plane that they arranged to be one foot off the ground. They just did that themselves. They, they just did like, that, you know, to so get what some they more... found is, so a better title for this study would be people flying at altitude in an airplane, statistically unlikely to agree to jump out with no parachute. Well, that was one of the findings, <laughs> but you'll find, you'll find that. I in, will find. In medicine, and again, this is true in other areas of science, not like physics where it's more, you know, but like in, in medicine and other things where we're trying to observe and, and really make, gain knowledge about um, a population that we can't fully control. Okay. That there's a desire to produce certain types of uh, measurements. Like, okay. okay, is this thing effective or not? And yeah. then there's typical approaches that we'll tend to take to measure whether or not something is effective. Um, and one of those ways is not to go and do a study about whether likely are people to agree or not to be in your study. I mean, you do a study of, oh, well, is Tylenol effective for this thing or is this right, chemo but, drug But you don't realize more? that you're actually determining how likely people are to agree to the thing that you're... That's one of the confounding things. And so in the, in the story, you eventually get to the bottom of the study and they start to become a little bit less 
sort of like tongue in cheek sarcastic and are like, okay, what is the point of this entire study? Which was, it is, it was kind of a useful illustration to help check because, you know, the context of all this is that there's some people arguing against some um, medicines and, and approaches and surgeries and stuff where that are commonly done. And they say, well, there's no evidence that this thing uh, works, even if it's kind of like, well, uh, generally agreed, all sort of common sense is like, we probably should do this thing. Um, and they're kind of trying to illustrate the challenge of, of doing these kind of studies to really quote unquote prove certain types of things. So at a high level, I see. you know, there are many interventions that are unethical or difficult really to rigorously evaluate with a randomized trial, because if, if the thing is like, okay, it, either it's a parachute or it's like, oh, okay, well, you've had this, you know, your appendix is bursting. Should we operate on you or not? Yeah. Should we do a surgery or not? We don't know if it's going to help. We think it helps, right? So it's like, well, we're just going to randomly. It's like, no, you need to have ethical approval. And yeah. it's like, well, people like so. So that there's that like underlying problem. And then even if you do attempt to try to measure it, of course, you have this thing where people have to ethically, you know, they have to agree to participate in this thing. And people are going whether or not they agree will be skewed by whether or not they think the thing will be effective for them or not. Because if you say, oh, okay, well, you take a randomized trial of this thing that you don't know whether or not it's going to be effective you might be like yeah okay sure but if you're like oh will you take a randomized trial of something that you're pretty sure like wearing a parachute when you're in an airplane you're like probably pretty sure that this is going to be helpful or at least you reason to think it's going to be helpful and so you're going to be disinclined to take a study uh to participate in a study that uh, or, or maybe your doctor would be disinclined to to encourage you to participate in a study that it might deprive you of an effective treatment um and so that's kind of the point of of this whole study and i found it very entertaining i 1000 percent would have loved to have been uh, a fly on the wall when they asked people when they presented their case for <laughs> jump off this plane that's one meter over the ground because we want to test not the one you probably thought the other one but like jump off this plane that's one meter which is what like three feet off of the ground mm-hmm. to 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 find out if parachutes will <laughs> <laughs> and they have photos of it like it's worth reading the it's worth reading the study because they definitely went through you know for the sake of uh, well they rigor. have to it's rigorous it's rigorous british medical journal level stuff where they went through every step of like randomization statistical yeah. analysis recruiting the cohorts doing you know getting multiple sources of of participants and all these sort of things and followed all the all the things you're supposed I, to do. I love everything about this story thank you so much for sharing this with you're us. welcome this is absolutely incredible uh so I'm I'm trying something new. I'm I'm going to try something new this this time here on Fun mm. Fact. I have a fact that I'm pretty confident you will know about already. Okay. okay. We're going to see. We'll find out. But I I want to take the the listeners who may not know about it on a journey. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll try not to spoil the fact. Well, we'll see how we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I have a little bit know. of a tendency to do that anyway. And you get annoyed at me, but I'll try yes, not to. That is true. <laughs> uh, okay. Fun fact. Hmm. The most valuable heist in Canadian history mm. was the theft of 3,000 tons of maple syrup. I have heard this. I don't know too much about it. but That's I, wonderful. I have I, heard that that was the case. Yeah, because I was going to ask you if, like, do they teach this in school in Canada? Did you... Were you following every day of the investigation, like OJ and the Bronco situation? <laughs> Did school children scream out loud when sentences were handed down? Like, what was Canada like on the ground during this event? Yeah, I, I think it was... Um, 
probably after my school age, if I recall was, correctly. Yes, yeah, so yeah, probably it's been now enshrined in, in, in all what, curriculum. Yeah, we call it yeah. social studies. I think you might call. Have no, we call it social studies. We call it social studies. Okay, yeah. So it's probably part of our 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 social studies curriculum in between, like you know, Confederation and yeah. you know how we how the various you know. Uh, teaching Canadians about the terrible things that we've done as a country in the past. At to, least you to, do that. I mean, <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that down here. Uh, so this is, in my opinion, the, maybe the most Canadian story of all time because it's literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on your flag, right? Yeah. Like yeah. this is this is a heist. This is a heist that would strike at the heart of all Canadians. Maple. Yeah, maple syrup. So I want to give some backstory for those who don't know, because not all of our listeners are from Canada. I mean, ninety-eight mm-hmm. percent, I think, are from the greater vancouver area but the rest of you no. for those of you who not living in canada i think it's it's it was like it's like isn't it like four to one or five to one in u.s to canada now i have no idea you look at these numbers and i i do, I do okay not. i shouldn't i shouldn't out myself as a person who looks at analytics because i no. know it's not cool no you're not cool you are uncool. yeah i think we're a majority u.s listeners. so so some backstory maple syrup in case those don't in case you don't know comes from maple trees uh mostly if it's genuine uh there's definitely some maple syrup there's definitely things marketed as maple syrup that I'm pretty sure come from corn. Well, this thing's marketed as syrup. It was like one of those things. I think most Canadians just assume, and maybe this is not a thing in the States, but most Canadians assume that all syrup is maple syrup. And yeah. then they one day have a realization where it's just like, why is this syrup like $15 or whatever? Yeah, yeah, and it's like, yeah. oh, because it's maple it's, syrup. It's Look at just, this bottle. Yeah. Syrup. Yeah, exactly. It's just corn. It's just yeah. corn syrup with some maple flavoring. But so those trees, those maple trees, they only grow basically in one small part of North America, basically like the northeast of the United States and the far east of, of Canada. And as a result, uh, for various reasons, the Canadian province of Quebec controls something like 72% of all maple syrup in the world. And the way that Quebec does this is through an organization called FPAQ, which I'm going to refer to as FPAQ. Hmm. And that stands mm-hmm. for the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, but in French. So sure. uh, I'm not going to try to say that and butcher it. So there you go. FPAC. And one can think of FPAC at some level as similar to OPEC. If mm-hmm. you're familiar with OPEC, it's a pseudo cartel. We're in cartel corner. We are in cartel and scheme corner. Nice. My favorite corner. Some of my favorite corners. And uh, OPEC is a sort of a pseudo cartel that controls the price of oil. It is made up of 13 leading oil-producing countries, mostly in the Middle East and Africa, but also Venezuela. And similar to OPEC, FPAC keeps a large reserve of syrup and are therefore able to manipulate the price of syrup per barrel. Uh, and it's very important to note that the price of syrup per barrel, syrup is way more valuable than than, than oil. Like Maple syrup. Hol- sorry. Maple syrup. But when I say syrup in this story, we are talking about. Okay, from here on out, so we're syrup. assuming we're going to go back to our teenage minds and assume all syrup is legit. All syrup maple is syrup. maple syrup. Yeah, that's right. Way more variable, va- valuable per barrel than oil, like up to 25 times more value. Mm, As delicious. of my research yesterday, I believe the bar- price of crude oil at the moment is around $100 a barrel in the US. Mm-hmm. And syrup from Canada, maple syrup from Canada is around $1,600 a barrel. So it's currently mm. 16 times more expensive to buy actual genuine Quebecois maple syrup than it is to buy oil. <laughs> so uh, anyway, FPAC, they say they keep the reserve not to do price gouging, but to ensure that maple syrup is available. Oh, yes, in of course. Where the harvest isn't as good. It's maples, really just a service to all of us so that we always have maple you syrup. You always have syrup because there are yeah. years where the trees just don't produce. And if sure. they didn't hoard tons of maple syrup, then there would be years with no syrup. 
Mm-hmm. And we cannot yeah. have that. So yeah. they store this reserve, which is officially called the International Strategic Reserve, which is <laughs> just a hilarious name. I it also gives this. you a little bit of a hint that you're like, it's not about prices. It's really not about prices. <laughs> <laughs> they store it in various warehouses scattered across rural Quebec towns. Yes. But of course, the secret locations. Yeah. Well, sure. Anyway, back in 2011, there was apparently a banner year for production, hmm. and it led to the FPAQ, FPAC, renting out an additional warehouse, not one of their usual warehouses, hmm. in order to store an extra 16,000 barrels. Hmm. Sounds like a lot. And when the Federation rented that space, they knew that it had charitably minimal security. Right. Uh, there were no alarms. There were no cameras. Hmm. But as they later defended, who would steal maple syrup? How would they steal it? What would they do with it? It's really heavy. Where would they store it? It just seemed completely inconceivable to them that anyone would try. Mm-hmm. So security through uh, lack of interest, I guess. I don't know what you would. Well, I mean, call there's that. a lot of that. Like you know, a lot of farms just like they have bales of hay. Hay that are just like laying there, and like someone could yeah, come take in their theory, bay, you could just their, go into the hay. field and just take the, but the hay. But who's like, stealing the hay? Who's going to do that? But if hay was sixteen hundred dollars a barrel, you you know, there's someone who might be like, hmm, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, the Federation has a good point. Like, how like how would they even do it? I mean, to do that, I don't know. You Just spitballing here. You would need someone with an, some kind of inside connection. Mm. Someone like, say, Avik Caron, whose wife co-owned the rented warehouse that oh, they no. chose. <laughs> and then what else would you need? You would need someone who, who understood the maple syrup black market. Mm. Which exists, apparently. So, yeah, someone like Richard Valier, who was mm. what's called a barrel roller. Oh. Which is a term of art for someone who buys and sells syrup directly from producers, bypassing the Federation. Oh, oh which you're not supposed to do, of course. No, and this is in the long-standing maple syrup black market. Yes, uh, okay. In Canada. So, yeah, in 2011 and 2012, these thieves, these two men, including many other, stole the contents of 9,571 barrels, <laughs> valued collectively at the time, at roughly $18.7 million Canadian dollars. And it's also important to know that in 2012, the Canadian dollar was roughly one-to-one with the American dollar. So for all of our five-to-one American listeners out there, they got away with roughly $18.5 million worth of maple syrup. And so so this is over a time frame. Like, in my mind, it was like the heist was like they broke open the doors and they just loaded, I don't know. No. But, like, it sounds like over time, it's just like yeah. a few barrels are disappearing, a few well, barrels yeah, are Well, yeah, so the way that they did it was by taking the barrels out a few at a time to a remote sugar shack, mm-hmm. which is also just an incredible name, just an absolutely wonderful name, uh, which is a, a place that you deal with and process maple syrup. Oh, yeah. And it's just the best. And they would siphon the syrup, and they would refill the original barrels with water, and then put oh, them back clever. Okay. into... Yeah. And then they would transport the syrup out of Quebec, because it was hot. I'm talking about hot syrup it was, it was. It was, yeah, hot in the terms of... <laughs> in terms of yeah. its... It might attract stolen heat. nature, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't just warm syrup. It wasn't just warm syrup, although it was probably quite warm. With the help of a New Brunswick syrup reseller mm. and profit, and what, and they, uh, ultimately they would sell it to legit syrup resellers because, of course, as they later pointed out, there is no way to tell when you get the syrup, right? What the provenances of the syrup is once it's you know uh, out of the hands of whoever originally sold it, right? So, and so then the the people who are buying it from them a don't know that it was illicit, and b there's no way to for anyone to prove that they've received right. illicit stuff, especially once it just kind of gets merged into the chain. That's of right, and they so. have presumably have no incentive to do that either. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's not like it's been stamped on the side of the 
liquid like you can't yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) like once it's in a different barrel i don't really know what you can do so uh apparently the scheme was actually discovered at one point along the way by one of the night guards who was bribed by a superior to keep quiet which i find Uh a fascinating detail i tried to track down more about that one point and was unable to so that's we'll call that hearsay but like it, it was mentioned in the trial and i find it fascinating anyway eventually the thieves got lazy as thieves often do yeah. and they just started siphoning the barrels directly yeah and uh <laughs> not refilling them with anything so oh, okay so then as soon as like someone pushes on one of the barrels they're well, like wait a minute p- pretty much so what happened so it turns out that the federation doesn't look at their barrels that often though i mean uh, so i mean <laughs> again they assumed no one would ever possibly steal them yeah. So and they're you know being stored for like you know Armageddon or whatever when the world has Prince music. But they're lining in a spreadsheet to the person who's like responsible. It, exactly. For them, right? So in 2012, uh, roughly a year after this all had started, the FPAC did their yearly syrup inventory, hmm. and one of their inspectors was climbing up a tower of barrels to check some near the top. And nearly fell as he was expecting them to individually weigh about 600 pounds per barrel, 270 kilograms, and one was now empty. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> this led, they also noticed that some of the barrels looked rusty mm. because, of course, syrup does not rust mm. the metal mm. of the barrel like mm. water does when you fill it. <laughs> Police thus began a full scale investigation and and actually hundreds of the barrels were later recovered, but only hundreds out of like 9,500. So mostly they got away with the syrup uh in the resulting criminal investigations and trials though 17 people were eventually arrested for the theft and these included the aforementioned barrel roller who was accused of being the ringleader was sentenced in april 2017 to eight years in prison Hmm. plus a 9.4 million canadian fine with an extension to 14 years in prison if the fine is not paid Oh, wow. Now, in 2016, the Quebec Court of Appeal ruled that that was excessive, and they lowered the fine to 1 million Canadian, but the Supreme Court of Canada reversed that decision in 2022 and reinstated the original fine. Wow. Yeah, he is famous for saying that, quote, stealing from thieves is not stealing. And this brings up the point that the FPAC is not universally beloved. Sure, uh, yeah. And uh, are regarded as a sort of cartel and you can see that even more strongly in the words of the syrup reseller his name was etienne st pierre and he was sentenced to two years in jail minus one day and i saw that in a bunch of the sentences and i'm wondering if that's a canadian thing yeah i thought they had that in the states too it's like over a certain it's like a felony or something over a certain amount of time so like if if you have a sentence that's longer than a certain threshold then suddenly additional restrictions and and I see. It's so like the a, minus one day is the longest time they can do without crossing that line. Yeah, the threshold. I don't off the top of my head know what happens okay. at the two-year point, but I think that's what's going no, on. No, that's very helpful. But he wrote a letter that was introduced in the trial uh, calling the, the FPAC a bunch of a-holes part of the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does feel kind of right that like stealing from a bunch of a-holes should be like a little bit more lenient than if you steal from like really nice people. Yeah, I mean, he got... The two years in jail, three years of probation, and an 850000 Canadian fine. So mm. it didn't work out great for him. The father of the ringleader uh, was convicted of possession of, of illicit syrup. and mm-hmm. sentenced Which is to a two, part of the Canadian criminal code. That's right. Apparently sentenced to two years <laughs> in jail minus a day, followed by three years of probation. And Mr. Avik Caron, the uh, insider whose spouse owned the warehouse, he was sentenced to five years in prison, serving a one with a 1.2 million Canadian fine. And finally, the trucker involved in transport served eight months in prison. Now, apparently there is a episode of the Netflix show, Dirty Money, about this mm. story. And uh, Amazon is developing a comedy series based on this heist. 
There was a Jason Siegel movie in the works for years about this situation, but I think it may be uh, not happening anymore. I'm not sure. But at any rate, adjusting for inflation, this is the most valuable heist in the history of Canada. Wow. Which well, uh, is... I feel like they we need to make sure that no heist like supersedes that unless it's even more canadian unless it's like they're steve stealing beavers yeah that's what i was or, gonna ask you what could be a sticks more or something canadian heist than this like if they stole the edmonton oilers yeah is that just a more canadian the whole franchise heist? not just the team but like the logo if america stole the edmonton oilers is that a bigger heist i mean that would be quite dramatic i mean that would get even more uh press coverage than than the, the maple syrup heist i think yeah america stole the oilers we're very sensitive to american cities taking our teams or would it be the toronto maple leafs like who's the team that would get the most people upset well toronto maple leafs could not be moved to the united states like we would the canadian military would like intervene (laughs) you did win the last time we had a a, a war so yeah so there's precedent and i and i really do feel like pretty much any other team other than the maple leafs and the canadians like Mm -hmm. that there could be like it would be very dramatic. There'd be people would be very upset if you moved yeah. the Vancouver Canucks or the Calgary Flames to to a U.S. city. But I think the the the, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Canadians like they would literally just nationalize the team. It would just be like, well, socialism owns this team now. You're like you're legally not allowed to anyone who wants to try to buy this team is like barred from entering the country. Like it would be. I, I like you, like I'm kind of joking, but I'm also kind of like I don't think you're I, I would I would personally I don't I live on the entire other c- c- side of the country I yeah. would almost feel like that would just non jokingly merit government intervention to prevent that from happening. You can only buy the team if you ha- can do it entirely in Toonies. Yeah, like we like, just make some ridiculous rule. It has to be in maple syrup as per yeah. the. Hey man, the I mean, you could buy the team in syrup. I mean, I kind of want to start referring to all things of value in terms of a syrup based equivalent. Like yeah, well, better than oil syrup. Way right, like we're on a path now like we're past peak oil yeah. and like obviously we we're still very oil syrup. well yeah we're not past peak syrup syrup's just only it's a renewable resource right syrup is a renewable resource if managed well by say an organization like the federation <laughs> of producers of coin needs a cartel so yeah. i love that that is that is delightful yeah. Um. And I, I love Arik bringing the Canadian facts, and and I didn't. I wasn't really here to spoil it. Like I knew it didn't happen, but no. Yeah. No. This was kind of the, my ideal scenario because I was worried I was going to get into some Canada splaining here, but it didn't. And uh, then I'd be I'd be arguing with you about it or whatever. You're like, no, that's not what happened. Maple syrup is twenty percent. Da da da. You know, and that we didn't. That's not yeah. what we landed. No. So I'd like to close out with uh, some bone follow up. Yeah, so I think we're, like, are we slowly getting to, like, an almost ATP level, like, of people in our, like, you know, the factors out there, you are you are wildly overrepresented in a number of interesting jobs. Like, is that where we're going with this? Like, Yeah, we we're some, getting, I think I think interesting people have interesting jobs, interesting people yeah. like interesting Listen to facts. Our podcast. And uh, so we appreciate that, and what that means is that we can share facts, and then increasingly over time, we get uh, in uh, emails and messages from people who have more to share on these topics. And last episode, I shared a fun fact about bones, which led to a question from Arik about why is it that we have this pisiform bone in our hands, um, yeah. but we don't have that same bone in our feet? And I was like, I don't know, I made kind of a guess as to why, but uh, an orthopedic surgeon is in our audience, uh, one who specifically is an expert on hands and feet, Sam M., wrote in not only with some follow-up, but some additional bone facts that I'm going to share with you now. So, first off, the follow-up. So you have the pisiform bone in your hand, not but not in your foot, 
Uh, because when it comes to feet, the equivalent bone fuses with an adjacent bone and forms the heel bone. So that tiny little sesamoid bone in your wrist that's like, you know, barely large enough to, to notice, the equivalent is like the, like a half of your, your heel bone, um, which I thought was quite cool and totally yeah. answered our question. Completely answered um, it. Yes. Thank you, Sam. And, and I, I was talking about how the, this pisiform bone was one of these sesamoids, so it's kind of like in a, in a tendon. Um, the tendon that's analogous in the foot that's attached to that, the equivalent bone in, in your heel is the well-known Achilles tendon. So the, that's yeah. a kind of a sense of The one of that, that athletes often rupture when they're getting a little past their prime. Yeah, or if you're a, a Greek hero that you might want to make sure you keep an it's eye on. It's the one place. you got to be careful. Yeah. Uh, Sam also had uh, some follow-up on my claim that babies have more bones than adults. And technically, uh, in his description, uh, the things that babies have more of are ossification centers. Which is such a great term. It's a great, great term. Obviously, you know, when somebody uses a term like ossification center, I'm like, you know more than I do. (laughs) So let's just tell people what you say. Um, Blobs as you described, blobs that solidify into bones, but they're not yet fully bony. Um, so they do have more of them than um, adults do because the, they do end up, you know, bonifying. That's an Allen word, not a Sam word. <laughs> bonifying, <laughs> uh, uh, solidifying, uh, ossifying, and then uh, infusing in many, many cases. Um, yeah, but he would, he would say, you know, that he would say that they do not have more bones uh, than a, than an adult because he would say that those are not bones. Yeah, because they are, they're ossification they are fu- they're future bones. They're future bones. In fact, you're not until your mid-20s until you get the last of them. Yeah, so the the, the clavicle uh, bone that we have around our, our necks uh, apparently is the last one to fully solidify, and that's not until you're in your 20s. So you yeah. have flexibility uh, and, and solidification happening this is why throughout the body. I can't first, flex like, my, my clavicle anymore. I know. I missed that. Yeah, I, 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 I did go. not notice I didn't that. Know I guess I, it happens over 20 years. I didn't so you, appreciate it till it was gone. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, how, that's how aging is. <laughs> um, so that was always fascinating. And I always enjoy when people are able to um, clarify or correct what, what, what I've said on the show. But I particularly enjoyed uh, Sam sharing a really fun hand fact that I found fascinating. And so it actually, it's actually kind of changed how I view my own body. So I'll, I'll share this with you all. The question is, if you were captured by a Bond villain and they are going to chop off one of your fingers, but you get to pick which one, which one would you pick? What's your least important finger? What was your first instinct on that, Arik? Mm, ring. Yeah, I was thinking the pinky. That was my initial No, but instinct. you're a programmer. How are you thinking the pinky? Oh, what do you do yeah, control far. key with? Yeah, that's true. That would be a struggle. Well, uh, we would both be wrong uh, because it turns out the least important finger is your index finger. The po- pointing? The pointer finger, right? If you think of only yeah, one finger. point it's... with this finger instead. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people would say that the index finger is the most important just because it's kind of the canonical finger. Yeah. Uh, but if, yeah. apparently if you lose an index finger, you quickly adapt to pinch just as effectively with your thumb and your middle finger instead oh, of your thumb and your yeah. index finger. Well, you know, I, my children are too young yet to know of uh, ridiculous, uh, completely arbitrary societal rules like mm-hmm. don't put one particular finger in the air and point it at someone. Sure. They They're not, they don't mean anything them. by it. And they often point with that with their middle finger. Mm. And mm-hmm. I just find it, a, 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 you know, endearing and delightful because they don't know. And I'm not. They don't know. And I, I don't react in any way because I also don't understand why anyone cares about that at this point in time. But, uh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, 
what I wonder what the use of the ring finger is that I'm not considering. Uh, my thing would just be like any of these three fingers, the middle three fingers, seem infinitely less important to me than the two outside fingers. The thumb uh, and the pinky. Yeah. The middle finger and is pretty important for... Uh, well, I mean, your index finger and your middle finger are for, you're using them for fine motor. Right, but if you have you know? one or the other, I'm, I'm saying I don't think you need both. Yeah, but apparently if you have just the middle finger, you're a lot better off than if you have just the right. pointer but finger, what, for I reasons. Know, Sam, if, you're, if you want to write in again, <laughs> tell me why the why is the ring finger uh, more valuable than the index finger? My, I know he did write in on the pinky, because that's a lot of people said that my yeah. instinct, which is the pinky, it's the smallest one, so it must be least important. He said that if you lose your pinky, you lose a third of your grip strength. Yeah, that sounds bad. That sounds bad. And my guess yeah. would be that you'd have a similar problem with the, with the, the ring. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Well, thanks, Sam. 